Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight. I'm Annie Dickerson. And I'm Julie Lamb. Together, we're the founders of Good Egg Investments and creators of the Real Estate Accelerator. We help real estate investors and syndicators build their brands, find the right investors for their deals, and scale their businesses so they can do more and bigger deals. We believe that everyone has the power to make an impact through raising capital and helping people achieve financial freedom through real estate. We invite you to join the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight Facebook group so we can amplify our impact together. We know you're going to love this episode. And hey, be sure to stick around to the end of the show because we're going to reveal how you can be our next guest on one of the fastest growing real estate podcasts on the planet. Ready? Let's go. Welcome back, friends, to the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Dickerson, and today I'm thrilled to introduce you to Chris Seveny. Chris, how are you today? I am wonderful, Annie. How are you today? I am fantastic. As we were talking about right before we hit record is that today as we're recording is a Friday, so we're rolling yes. into the weekend. But uh, <laughs> with this, um, to kick off the the conversation, why don't you share with our listeners you know, a little bit about your backstory and how you got into the real estate space in the first place? Absolutely. So first, again, thank you for having me on, Annie. Uh, so I've actually been in real estate for since 1997, a long time. I got into real estate uh, after graduating college and uh, as a civil engineer and started working for a large general contractor, which did that for 15 years, then moved on to development role side of things. And people realize moving that change, it's a big change. And it's also very different because much different mindset from a contractor to a developer. And that's when in 2012-ish, I got the uh, the juice to start doing my own, uh, my own developments. I was working for a boss who at the time had a lot of property in California. And he's like, you're never going to retire if you don't own your own property. And, you know, I'd built property throughout my career, but was realizing, hey, I got to get into this game. So the first deal we did actually was my primary residence where I'm sitting right now. Uh, we acted as general contractor on it. We bought a piece of property, knocked the house down, built it in 2012, 13 timeframe, ended up having lots of equity, rolled that into uh, some more fix and flips. Uh, we took a line of credit and started doing fix and flips. The challenge we ran into was we were in the Washington DC area very expensive and very competitive market. Uh, if you are not on top of things and looking at property that day, it's gone. And I have wife, my wife worked full-time, I worked full-time. We had two young kids at the time. So we kind of squashed it after uh, two, uh, we did, I said, we didn't flip them. We bought them, rehabbed them and kept them as rentals. And one of them we actually still have today. But that got me still churning and ended up getting into uh, mortgage notes. So I learned that through the Bigger Pockets website, which probably many of your listeners have, and started out small uh, in 2016, you know, using my own funds and stuff. And now I've grown it fast forward to today, where I've got about 250 assets under my um, management right now. And I've got them under different, uh, I have two Reg D 506Cs and I have a 506B and also got my attorney looking at potentially doing a Reg A at this time. So we've moved into the syndication world, which 
is much uh, simpler, actually, in the grand scheme of things than trying to run multiple joint ventures on uh, a one JV partner for every deal, because you have to operate it almost like every a different company. And the reporting to that to go back to everyone is very intensive. So I am very glad that I uh, got into syndicating. Yeah, I love the the evolution of what you've done. You sort of started out and thought, okay, well, let's do smaller things, and then you're like, well, no, let, let's let's get more people, let's maximize our impact, get more people in, and you got into the mortgage note space, and now syndication. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, dig in a little bit there. So the the syndications that you're doing or these offerings that you're um, putting out there. These are in mortgage notes. Is that correct? It's like a, a fund. Yep. So it's a fund where we will uh, go out, raise money. It's somewhat, I'll say blind fund because we'll raise the money and then go out and buy a pool of assets. Uh, one of the things we do a little bit differently though, I'd say is we actually, once we buy the assets, we do let our investors kind of um, into a portal that they can see the assets in the fund. So they do can look at them. Uh, we do report and share the stories with them. Uh, as well, because like real estate investing, there's always a story. Uh, the notes we buy typically are non-performing notes. So they're distressed, similar to if you're in real estate, might buy a distressed property. People ask the question all the time, why would you buy something not performing? And again, it's similar to buying a property that needs rehab. Instead of rehabbing a property, you try and rework that borrower and you try and get them on new payment plans to get them repay again. Our goal is to try and keep them in their property. Uh, we like to think we're successful there's at times where unfortunately we can't reach an agreement and do have to take um, further legal action on borrowers. But uh, yeah, so we, you know, we'll pool, um, you know, again, raise the money and then go out and buy these pools of notes, typically from hedge funds. Uh, and it's a lot of times ones that might be below the level they want to manage. And we, you know, roll up our sleeves, get a little, you know, elbow grease into them and get them worked out and, uh, you know, make some money off of it as well as keeping people in their house. Yeah, it sounds like a win-win. So let me see if I understand the process correctly. So you put together this blind pool and get investors, you educate them about mortgage notes and why invest in them. And then you open up this offering, this blind pool fund, and they you pull together all of their funds. And then, then you go out and buy from often from hedge funds. Um, these pool of underperforming or non-performing um, mortgage notes. And then you guys, you must have a team set up then to, are you like calling um, individual homeowners? And- <laughs> <laughs> so in, interesting. So actually it's more of a management role. So think of mm. the note space because a lot of people don't understand notes. A lot of people think yeah. the banks um, you know, control it and it's a person from the bank calling you. It's really not. Um, they have a company called a servicing company, just like most people have a property manager. They manage that asset for you in the sense of, they are the ones making the phone calls, sending out the statements uh, and coordinating that effort. And the reason why is in order to do all that work, you have to be specially licensed in the state you're doing business. You have to follow the um, Dodd-Frank CFPB guidelines on things like who can you talk to? You know, if a, a woman is on the loan, but not a spouse, you can't talk to the spouse. And, you know, a lot of times it's, you know, in regards to that, you need permission. Or if it's an elderly person who wants their, you know, child to speak, you, you know, you need their permission. And, you know, so that's things most people are like, oh yeah, it's 
family member, sure, you know, talk to them about it, but actually a lot, you gotta be careful. You might be breaking um, some of the regulations. So that's where we use uh, what's called a servicer who performs that. And the other key team member, of course, is attorneys to make sure uh, the assets we're buying are legitimate and they're something that we can still recover. They're secured still, uh, as well as if we need to take legal action, of course, we always go through an attorney on those as well. And so for you mentioned that a lot of people don't understand notes, and I find that to be the case as well. There's a lot of confusion and myths and misunderstandings out there. So for anybody who might be listening who may not be familiar, give them a high-level overview of what notes are, and then tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about why, why create these funds around mm-hmm. notes. What's so great okay. about investing in notes? So one of the first questions I usually tell people or ask people is, you know, if you live near a city, who owns the tallest building in that city or the biggest building? And most people say, oh yeah, a, a bank. Um, and when you think about it, as a, a note is a promise to pay. So people, um, you know, listeners, if you own a home, uh, you sign two documents typically. One is a note, which is a promise to pay how much you're borrowing from the bank. And the second is your mortgage. In some states, it's called the deed of trust, which is the terms that say, hey, if you don't pay me the money that you signed on the note, this mortgage allows me to secure it with the property so I can go take the property. So, um, and that's issued by a bank. And then a lot of times it might get collateralized into you know Wall Street and so forth. But some banks, uh, credit unions keep them. And if they go distressed, what happens is they usually will get broken from pools and sold off to, you know, funds on Wall Street might buy a hundred million dollars at a time. And then it trickles down to the investors. Um, So that's kind of what a note is. So you're not buying the property. That's the biggest thing to reiterate to people. It's you are not buying the property. And most people think you're buying the property. All you are is all you're doing is I'm going to use banks as a reference, um, you know, no opinions on them, like a PNC or Wells Fargo. Instead of you owing Wells Fargo that money, you would own the entity of the fund that money. So we just act as the bank in that situation. A lot of people who do private lending, it's the same thing where if you do a short-term loan for somebody on a fix and flip, you're the lender. We're again, in that same position, essentially. And as for the investors in these funds, who's the ideal investor to invest in a mortgage note fund? Uh, A lot of our investors are people who have self-directed IRAs. Uh, The reason why is one of the downfalls with um, mortgage notes in the funds is unlike traditional real estate, which has tax advantages of um, depreciation and uh, long-term capital gains, notes are treated as ordinary income, unfortunately, because it's interest. So it's based on your essential tax bracket. So with that being said, a lot of people who have self-directed IRAs like to use that money to invest in notes because there is no depreciation and they can use that money to grow tax-free and use your free cash to invest in other types of syndications that may have better tax benefits. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine, yeah, that uh, it's a good fit for um, Mm -hmm. retirement fund investors because of that. Mm -hmm. So, 
Okay. So you're putting together these funds. Tell us a little bit more about how you go about structuring the funds and how many, how long have you been doing this? How many mm-hmm. of these have you done? Are they doing yeah. well? Give us a little insight there. Yeah. So I am in the process of closing out my first fund, uh, which was a two-year fund. Uh, one of the differences, they're usually shorter term than most, I'll say, uh, multifamily syndications, which might go five to seven years. Uh, we, uh, I've adapted slightly because of, I'll say lessons learned or things you want to tweak. Uh, I'm on my fifth fund right now. And our typical raise is between, uh, one to 3 million. So we keep them smaller and the benefits to that is it's easier to get that type of money out the door because on a fund, when you're giving a preferred interest rate or preferred return plus upside, uh, if the money's sitting in the bank account, not being used, it's not, you know, not working for you. So we'll typically raise the money. We put, try and put it out the door very quickly. Uh, from that perspective, uh, we like, uh, the funds have you know ranged over time. I'll be honest, the preferred returns have gone down over time just because of the cost of acquisition costs has increased as well as interest rates have continued to go down. So our returns have, you know, I'll say slightly gone down. We target to get investors between 11 and 15% is annualized returns for the funds is what we target. And that starts with a pref that preferred return that starts anywhere from 7% up, depending on the amount of money they invest. And then they get excess distributions as well on top of that is so they get the preferred and then at the end of the year, we'll see what's left over after preferred and they get um, some split of that as well. You mentioned that the returns are, you're starting to see the returns mm-hmm. go down. That's exactly what we're seeing too on the deals mm-hmm. that we're, we're looking at and the syndications mm-hmm. we're putting together. And so I'm curious, how do you go about um, for investors who may be used to a certain percent return? How are you getting ahead of that, educating them on what you're seeing in the market and why, you know, the reasoning why behind that you're seeing um, the changes? Yep. So I start, I have some investors who have in one of my funds, a 10% pref. And then when they see my new one come out, that was down to seven. They're like, why can't you give 10? They're like, wait a second. I just saw this one over here. Yep. So one of the things you got to be, you know, careful about is know your limitations, because if Mm -hmm. I were in a fund now to start out at 10, you know, they'll get their pref. I'm not going to make any money or I'll make very little money on that deal where I still, you know, I want to, I'm always protect their interest, but you still need to make money on the deal to make it worthwhile. So I just, again, educate them and everyone realizes what's going on in the world today where everything's gotten a lot more expensive, housing, oil, gas, you know, products, everything's taking longer. The real estate market, I mean, open your eyes, your house goes on the market, it's, you know, getting sold for above value. Uh, Give an example. I got a list of assets last night that two years ago, these assets would have sold for 30 to 40 cents on the dollar. They are asking 75 to 85 cents on the dollar for them. Wow. Yeah. And that's quite a shift. Yeah. It's a very big shift. And if I were to purchase them, honestly, at 75 to 85 cents on a dollar, I wouldn't probably even make the preferred return based on what Mm -hmm. they're asking because of all the expenses and other things that would be involved. So if you explain it to them and show them, you know, why and explain it most understand, because I think in this marketplace, when they go and talk to other people, 
they're hearing the same thing. And it's not like everyone's colluding against each other. It's reality. That is, this is what's happening. Right. Absolutely. I think that's so wise to, and that's something we're always trying to do with our investors too, is just, you know, because they're not, um, they're not real estate nerds like we are. They're not reading the, you know, getting in depth with the the charts and the data every day. And so, but we are right. And we're out there um, talking to different people, keeping a pulse on what's going on. And so always trying to get ahead and educate them on what's going on. No. And one of the other things too, is I see like a large, a lot of the larger funds, their cost of capital is so low, you know, whether it's an insurance annuity company that's giving out 3% or other funds are giving three to, you know, they're borrowing capitals at three to 4%. So they can go buy certain assets. And I see this a lot in the multifamily side where they're paying, you know, 4% caps, 5% caps in areas that usually would probably be more like 8% because four is usually, you know, in a major metropolitan, San Francisco, LA, DC, New York, you know, somewhere down there, I'm seeing stuff like that now in Iowa, you know, yeah. in Michigan. And, and again, no offense to those states by any means, but they're typically not known to have a robust right. you know, streaming mm-hmm. economy that could support 4% cap rate. Uh, and again, I view that as extremely risky, uh, unfortunately, yeah. in, my, in my mind. Yeah. Well, Chris, it's clear you've gained a lot of expertise and seen a lot of success in this space. And you've certainly evolved from where you came from and built this business. So for anybody who might be trying to follow in your footsteps, what advice do you have for other syndicators out there who may want to put together a fund of their own? So first is your team. You know, you can't do it alone. And your team will consist of the attorney who you're going to have create your documents and understand their fee structure. I've seen attorneys who create documents and a perfect example is say you're raising a million dollars, they'll give you a number for X. And if say you're raising 1.5, they give you a higher multiple. The reality of it is they can charge a little bit more, but it shouldn't be significantly more because the real Delta is really just changing a number on the full, you know, on that uh, offering <laughs> for the most part. Uh, now, if you're going to start changing it where you've got, you know, extensive waterfalls and so forth, that's a different story. But so your team is one to make sure you have a really good attorney, a really good CPA, and put yourself in the investor's shoes. When you go to invest in a fund, What do you look for? You look for somebody with integrity. You want to do a background check on them. Who is their team? What's their experience? Those are the things that you have to make sure those are questions are going to be asked of you. So be prepared. So when you go meet with people, uh, they understand. I actually had a call at one point in time with uh, seven doctors or seven or eight doctors who, you know, high, you know, had considerable net worth and I didn't prepare for this call. And I had this webinar and I think I completely bombed it. And at the end of the day, um, a few of them invested, but I, you know, I make mistakes too. I wasn't prepared. I did not focus on it because running around is like, oh, it's going to happen and stuff. And, you know, I was also probably a little bit con- overconfident potentially. And they asked unbelievable questions and a lot of them I fumbled on. So that's where I, you know, my lessons learned to people is 
Make sure you know your audience, who you're trying to target, because that's another aspect of when you're raising money. Who's your target audience? Because if you're going to spend money on marketing, which I think you need to do unless you've got a good group of people, make sure you understand who it is you want to go after. Because today's marketing, you know, if you're especially doing it on social media or on the internet, I mean, there's, you know, billions of people on there. You want to make sure it's target focused and you have somebody who understands what it is you're looking for as well. And if somebody is listening and they're really intrigued by all that you're doing um, and they're like, ah, I want to do exactly what Chris is doing. How do I get started? What would you recommend as maybe one thing that they can do now to get them closer to what you're doing? Network with people who are doing it and associate with them, whether again, we're still in COVID. So if you're not going to REIA events and they're being held virtually, be a part and participate and ask questions. And if you're going to ask the question, make sure they're prescriptive. Don't ask, how do you do this? Ask certain situational questions of, well, if this were to occur, how do you typically handle it? And, you know, along those lines, but education's key uh, in any any, uh, type of uh, investing that you want to do. And I would say by meeting people, I don't think you need to go out and spend tens of thousands of dollars on training. I know a lot of real estate, different aspects of real estate have very expensive courses. I don't think you need to go that route. I think you could get some low dollar education training to get overview, read some books, listen to some podcasts. And like I said, networking is a key. And that's where I honestly have gained most of my knowledge is just reaching out to people, having 15, 20 minute conversations with them and understanding what they're doing. And then they throw out a name or mention it. And then I just write that down and then I'll reach out to that person and just kind of pick your way around. Yeah. Such sage advice. It's all about figuring out the who and not mm. necessarily the how you don't need to reinvent the wheel and start from scratch. Cause there's people out there like you who have done it successfully and often they're willing to share. So speaking of which Chris, <laughs> tell our listeners, if they did want to connect with you and learn more, mm. what's the best place that they can go? So they can go to my website, which is the number seven, letter E, then the word investments.com. So you could either sign up there or email me directly at chris at seven E investments.com. Those are the best two ways to reach out to me. And if you email me, I typically respond within 24 hours. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today, Chris, and sharing your story. To all of our listeners, be sure to follow up with Chris to learn more. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight. If you are a real estate investor or syndicator who would like to be on this podcast, please visit syndicationspotlight.com. And please also join the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight Facebook group so we can connect with you and learn more about you. And if you got something out of this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe to this show and give us a rating and review. We promise to read your feedback and take action to continue to make this show even better and more valuable for the real estate syndication community. My name is Annie Dickerson. And I'm Julie Lamb. Thanks for listening. And thank you for being a part of the real estate syndication spotlight community. 